All right, good morning, Linworth. Hope you guys are having a great day. If you want to stand up, then we're going to start worshiping together. Shine with all else, fate never ending. 
Romans 14, 17, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying you're not eating unto the world, you're not drinking unto the world, which doesn't even make sense. He says that you are righteousness unto the world, your peace unto the world, your joy in the Holy Spirit unto the world. C.S. Lewis puts it a different way. Christianity is not behavior. It's an experience with a God who loves you. So this morning as we worship, we just want to give you an opportunity to experience the Lord. If you can't do that in church, where can you, right? So uh, wherever you're at, whatever's going on, let the Lord have it. Be with Him. That's how you experience the Lord. You stop doing and you just be till it's time to be done. So we're giving you that open invitation this morning.
into a time of communion. If you don't have a communion cup, you can go ahead and go to the back and grab one right outside the doors. Um, this week as I was preparing for communion, I was thinking um, what song I felt best um, in my life helped me come to this place of reflection and um, dwelling on Christ's sacrifice for us. Because that's what we believe communion is, is remembering Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And without a doubt, this song is the one that always led me closest to him in those moments. And always had the greatest reminder of his sacrifice in my life. So as we sing this song, I'd encourage you to go ahead and take communion, spend some time in prayer, reflect on Christ's sacrifice for you. Oh, 
I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart His wounds have been my sent your son that he humbled himself onto the cross, God. He lived as a servant, but he was a king. God, I thank you for that, that he came and sacrificed himself for our sins. And I pray that we would just live daily in that reminder of that and always be grateful for it. We thank you and we praise you in your son's name. Amen. Kids can be dismissed to their classes. If you guys want to greet your neighbor, um, say hello. And we've got some announcements coming up. Go ahead and take a seat. Y'all like each other a little bit too much. Let's settle down here, all right? Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Limerth Road Church. We're so glad uh, that you've joined us this morning. I also want to say hello and uh, good morning to those of you who are watching online. Um, as a reminder, you can follow along uh, with the announcements and also the sermon today uh, inside that Bible app. Uh, go to events, look for Limerth Road Church and all the information's there. Or if you're here in person, you can just follow along with the bulletin. Um, now, for those of you who are visiting or who are new with us, uh, we would love it if you could reach in front of you and grab what we call a connect card and uh, just begin to fill that out with some basic information about yourself. Uh, and you can drop that off at our welcome center out in the lobby. 
And while you're there, go ahead and uh, let the person at the desk know that you're new uh, because we have a free Limworth mug we'd like to give you as a way of saying thank you for joining us this morning. Um, and then for everyone, uh, don't forget any prayer requests you might have, you can write that on the back of the Connect card. And again, those can either be dropped off at the Welcome Center or they can go in the offering boxes that are out in the lobby. But we do have a few announcements this morning. Um, the first is, is that our men's ministry is hosting uh, a, a weekend uh, that they call the Men's Wilderness Retreat. And what it is, is it's a time for uh, some men to get away uh, with each other, but you, you basically, you can't by yourself. Uh, the reason you go with others is so you can do it safely and also the camaraderie that, that comes with that. Uh, but it's really a time to, to set aside some time for you to get alone with the Lord. And there's some fasting involved. There's, uh, you know, really it's just you and the Lord spending time out in nature. And uh, for the men who have gone, it's for, for a lot of them, it's been uh, the Lord has really used that time to speak to them and to give them direction for uh, different parts of their life. And so if that sounds like something you're interested in, uh, you can just write Wilderness Retreat on that Connect card or in the bulletin or on the Bible app, you can see Michael Kern's uh, email address and you can contact him for more information. Uh, it's September 22nd through the 25th. You leave on a Thursday, come back on a Sunday afternoon. It's at the Allegheny National Forest uh, out in Pennsylvania. And so again, would highly encourage you to consider uh, going to that. Uh, next, that same weekend, we have another uh, really important event, and that is, is it's the Kairos Prison Ministry Weekend. And uh, this year it's at the Marion Correctional Facility. And uh, we have two members, uh, Alan Nash and Barry Cook, who will be going to that time. And as you heard last week, uh, there, there's a lot that they do on that weekend, but one of the, the pivotal things is uh, they hand out cookies to the prisoners. And uh, it's just amazing how that simple act of kindness can really open a door. And so uh, just to, to encourage you to participate in that, uh, we're going to watch a video now that, that talks about the impact of this ministry. And then Alan is going to be up to, to give us a little bit more information. And so let's go ahead and show that video now. What do you do with all those cookies on a Kairos? <laughs> Uh, I usually give mine away. I usually give my Kairos cookies away. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't go without, as you can see. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, you, you hear most of the guys that, that aren't believers down the hallway, they call them Jesus cookies. When are we getting the Jesus cookies? And that's an awesome thing. And un, a non-believer uh, uh, looking and excited about getting something from Jesus. And that's what it's all about anyways. So that's what I do. I give mine away. Uh, uh, to get blessings, you got to be a blessing. And that's what I try and do. On the weekend, they give you forgiveness cookies. And when I went through my weekend, it was a very... It was a, it was a time of my life. There was a teetering. There was a, there was a lot of stuff going on. I was in a very dark place, and uh, I was I was part of a, a group, and this group expected me to do some stuff, and it was going to happen after my weekend. And actually, during my weekend, they give you a uh, a brown bag of cookies, and they tell you, "Listen, give this to the person that you have to give the most forgiveness to," and the person that I was supposed to do something to. I sent that bag of cookies to him 
and he had just went through a weekend, so he knew what that bag of cookies meant. So in my weekend, it not only saved my life, but it possibly saved somebody else's life with those forgiveness cookies. Uh, because in me giving those forgiveness cookies, uh, that relationship with that guy was uh, rectified, was reconciled, and, uh, and those cookies, uh, uh, in many cases, and I'm not saying in all of them, but in many cases, they save lives. Alan, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about how we can be involved. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, cookies save lives. It's amazing how something so simple, chocolate chip cookies, can be so impactful. Just right now, I'm tearing up just thinking about it, being so emotional. Even people who don't know about them call them the Jesus cookies. So not only do the 42 inmates that are coming on to the Kairos weekend get cookies, but every resident and even the corrections officers get cookies there as well. The prison environment, like you said, is a dark place where prisoners face violence, anger, and gangs on a daily basis. In Matthew 25, 36, most people are familiar with it. You know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you clothed me. Well, when I was in prison, you visited me. As Kairos Prison Ministry steps into this darkness and holds a three and a half day a weekend, which is similar to a revival or an Emmaus walk. Through the talks and discussions, the chapel meditations, prisoners learn that they are not alone and that they are worthy of God's love, light, and grace. That no matter what they've done and who they are, that God loves them and forgives them. Now, like I said, not only do we minister to the 42 people, the residents, that we minister to the, all the corrections officers, we need about 8,000 dozen cookies to have a successful weekend. By sharing the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, Kairos hopes to change hearts, transform lives, and impact the world. How can you partner with us? Please come see me after church. I'll have a booth, and there's five main areas that I could use help with. Be a prayer partner. We bathe this in prayer. Before we go in, while we're in, we have a prayer vigil for every hour that we're in. You can sign up. And if you don't know how to pray or what to pray for, I've got a cheat sheet to give you. It gives you ideas of what to pray for. Create agape. Agape is un, me, unconditional love, selfless love. You say, what's agape? Children's church can make placemats. And when that resident comes to sit down for their meal, they'll see, oh, Caitlin made this. My granddaughter's name's Caitlin. And they'll, they'll be a touch, they'll, they'll keep this up in their cell because they'll, they'll have a personal connection. Also, of course, cookie bakers. Like I said, we go through 8,000 dozen cookies, so we need cookie bakers. And team members, if you're interested in going into prison and coming back out, see me afterward. <laughs> and also, of course, financial donors. Every weekend costs money, we bring our own food in. So I don't know if you mentioned it, but. They usually come for the food. They come for the cookies, they come for the food, because it's not prison food. We, we ship it in, and um, they'll come just for the food, and they'll get saved, and it'll be, you'll be able to watch miracles happen right before your eyes. Again, any questions, please see me afterwards. I'll have my booth. Thank you. Awesome. Wow, what a great ministry.
You know, last week we had a, a wonderful guest speaker and he talked about fulfilling the Great Commission. And when you think of uh, unreached people groups or neglected groups, certainly prisoners are among them. And so thank you, Alan and Barry, for your heart for this ministry and for bringing it to our church and uh, allowing us to be a part of it. So thank you. Well, we're, uh, like I said, we had a guest speaker last week, but this morning we're getting right back into wait. Uh, that's in the Bible. And so here's Pastor Chris. Uh, that may have been the best part of the service. Thanks, Alan. Uh, little, some anxious moments last night, Buckeye Nation? Some anxious moments? Hey, I told my friends before the game and during the game, do not worry. It'll all work out. When I, see, I'm a non-Buckeye fan, so I can be totally objective about it. Well, my Buckeye fans are just so anxious and worried. And I said, don't worry. It'll turn out... Even uh, his name will go unnamed, the person that was watching the game uh, in my home. I, don't worry, it's going to work out. And he said, don't jinx us. <laughs> One, jinxing is not a Christian doctrine. <laughs> and two, a non-fan cannot jinx another person's team, right? I mean, if there is such a thing as jinxing, that has to be part of it. I'm glad they won. As Nick said, we're going to get back into our series, Wait, That's in the Bible. And again, I want to tell you this morning that this is going to feel a little lecturally. I made up that word. Lectury. Lecture. Like a lecture. (laughs) But it is really vital. It is really vital, so stick with me. I encourage you to take notes. We're gonna go through a lot of information today, and it will maybe feel like a little bit like a lecture, but I think it's of vital importance for us, especially with so much scrutiny and criticism of the Bible and the things that Christians believe. It's really important that you understand some of these things. I also wanna say before I start, please remember to keep uh, Peter Thielen, member of our church, and. Marcy Old, a former member, member now at, a, at a, a related church, please keep them in your prayers and their families. They are really both fairly close to uh, saying goodbye to this world. So keep them in your prayers and pray for their families as well. Um, okay, I'm going to pray here in the beginning, and then we'll jump into the question, is the Bible anti-science? Father, we come before you this morning in need of your help to understand our world and how our scriptures speak to this world, to Christians and to non-Christians as well. So give us patience and attentiveness this morning and uh, help me to say what needs to be said. Um, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, there are so many cross currents on this issue, cross currents inside this room, cross currents outside this room, that indeed trying to prepare and know what to say is a difficult thing. And it's an odd thing when you're a pastor to take solace ultimately in not caring what anybody thinks of you. (laughs) That is an odd thing. Um, But it is the reality that the most important thing is that I please him. 
And, uh, and though some of you may disagree or may not understand parts of this, um, it's ultimately him that I'm responsible to. And uh, to do our best to be faithful to what God says in the scriptures. But I'm going to try to uh, capture some of these cross currents and speak to them and do the best we can. Are the Bible, or is the Bible and science completely at odds? Well, they should not, they should not be according to some famous paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould said that science and faith are in totally different domains. Therefore, there should be no conflict. They are asking different questions and providing different answers. That would solve the problem, right? Sermon over. But is that right? Well, we do know they overlap in one area. They agree that the universe had a beginning. Science calls it the Big Bang. The church historically has called it God creating ex nihilo, meaning bringing, creating something from nothing. Creating with his spoken word, bringing reality into existence. Comedic travel writer Bill Bryson gave a popular scientific account uh, in the beginning of his book called A Short History of Nearly Everything, an account of the Big Bang. Here's what he wrote. And so from nothing our universe began. In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavenly dimensions, space beyond conception. The first lively second, a second that many cosmologists will devote lifetimes to shaving into ever finer wafers, produces gravity and other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million, billion miles across and growing fast. There is a lot of heat now, 10 billion degrees of it, enough to create the lighter elements, principally hydrogen and helium, with a dash, about one atom in 100 million, of lithium. In three minutes, 98% of all matter that is or ever will be has been produced. We have a universe. It is a place of most wondrous and gratifying possibility and beautiful too. And it was all done in about the time it takes to make a sandwich. Now, not being a scientist, I'm not sure of all the particulars of what Bryson wrote, but science and the Bible do agree that the universe had a beginning and that now something exists. And has that not been the goal of science? through observation to explain why there is something rather than nothing. Science asks questions like this. How did the universe begin? How did we get here? Who are we? What is our relationship to the animal world, to the environment, right? Fields of science ask these questions. Now, Interesting, however, when we look at those questions, what else tries to answer those same questions? What else asserts the same answer or asserts answers to those questions? Indeed, the Bible seeks to answer these same questions. So without a doubt, unlike what Stephen Jay Gould said, science and Bible do overlap and this is where we run into some conflict and why the Bible has been accused of being anti-science. And 
frankly, how could science and faith not be in conflict when they have different starting points? Christians begin with a supernatural creator. And science seeks to explain the world without God. Now let me give an important qualifier before we go any further. When I say science in the context of this question, I am not describing the pure definition of science or the scientific method. Science, according to one writer, is simply organizing knowledge inferred from observing the world. The Bible wholeheartedly supports that aim. When I say the word science here, I'm using it in a broader way. And when I ask the question, is the Bible anti-science, I am thinking here of science as a worldview. And actually the technical word is scientism or materialism. Again, that being the effort by some, not all, certainly, by some scientists to explain the world without the need of a supernatural creator. Now, there are obviously many scientists who are Christians and who love God and who believe in God. We have had wonderful scientists throughout the history of our congregation and have some sitting here today. So, I think we have proved that science and the Bible seek to answer the same questions but they do have different starting points, and therefore there is conflict. Now, can we conclude from the conflict automatically that science is correct and the Bible is wrong? That the Bible indeed is anti-science in that sense? Well, my answer is to that uh, um, question, surprise, surprise, is no. <laughs> and I wanna take the rest of my time to share why I'm suggesting that. And I'm going to basically give two points this morning. The first point is the purpose of the Bible. And the second point is the cosmology of the Bible. Now, you remember the word cosmology from your old science classes. Cosmology simply means the, uh, the study of the cosmos, the origin and development of the universe. Now, yesterday, this is the honest truth. This is how the mind works when it's tired. For about two minutes or three minutes, I honestly thought the word was cosmetology. <laughs> and I actually had to go back and look it up. Like, is it cosmetology or is it cosmology? And then I sort of woke up from my stupor. Oh, it's cosmology. When we go through the cosmology of the Bible, I'll talk about two sub points. I'll talk about what Linworth believes. We'll spend just a moment on that because we have not shared that for quite some time, what Linworth believes. And then also, we'll talk about a 30,000 foot view of creation. So, um, but let's start with the purpose of the Bible. And will you stand? I want to read a very important passage. And we'll start here with our, 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 the scriptures. It's in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. And unfortunately, I don't have the page number if you're using our text, our, our, our text Bible. Our, our Bible is your text. And I'm going to read this in a little bit of a different version of actually what you have in your uh, there in front of you. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, a really wonderful passage. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. 
No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Take a seat. Okay. Fancy theological term. This passage speaks to what is called general revelation. What that simply means is it is the way that God shares knowledge about himself that is accessible to every person. What does this passage say? It says that God is the creator. And in the same way that we learn something about an artist, our songwriter, our filmmaker from their work, we learn something about God from his work, his creativity, his beauty, his significance. Knowledge is spoken of here, objective knowledge about God. Creation is personified poetically. Creation has a voice but it is not heard with the physical ear. There are no audible sounds or words. Rather, it speaks to our spirit through impression. It means that the physical creation has a profoundly spiritual purpose that cannot be explained purely in scientific terms. Now, something else worth noting of our purpose this morning is that notice that the sun and its rising and setting lacks a scientific description. The writer, as he sees it, simply says the sun rises and sets. This is not scientific language. It is what is called, you just have to break this word down. It's based on the word phenomena. Phenomenological language, which means the language of appearance. It describes what anyone can see, even though we know because of the rotation of the earth that the sun does not technically rise. There are other details we would like to know about the sun, but that is not necessarily the purpose of the Bible. Now, is that troubling? No. Oxford mathematician John Lennox wrote, he said, we can surely agree that the Bible is not written in advanced contemporary scientific language. The circumstance should not cause us any surprise or difficulty, but rather gratitude and relief. Why? Well, Lennox provides a thought experiment. He says, imagine that God did describe the origin of life and the universe in highly detailed scientific language. Given how much science has changed and continues to need correction, how would he do that? And if he were to choose sophisticated language to employ, where would he start? What if he chose language from the 22nd century? That would be largely unintelligible to us today, let alone previous generations. You see, this runs counter to the character of God, who desires his meaning to be accessible to all. Genesis, the book that explains our origins, has a message for everyone, Lennox says, not just the scientifically literate. A little more on this point. 
There was a scholar from the 16th century who embraced the authority of God's word. Listen to what he said. The Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy. And in proposing instruction meant to be common to the simplest and most uneducated persons, he made use of Moses and the other prophets of popular language. This is interesting. The Holy Spirit would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly to the humble and the unlearned. You see, what is the purpose of the Bible? It is not a scientific textbook intended to satisfy all of our 21st century questions. When written, it was answering different questions. In the creation story, Moses was distinguishing God, Yahweh, from the other gods in other creation accounts, such as those from Egypt or from Babylonia. This God, Yahweh, Moses asserts, has no rivals, as those gods did. He was not one of many gods, as those accounts testify. He is not at war with those other gods. He treats human beings with care and respect, again, unlike these other creation accounts. Recall, one of the lessons from our series is that the Bible was, written, was not written to us, but is for us. It had a specific audience in mind, but it is applicable to every generation. So, again, let's just spend a few more moments on this. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is not a scientific textbook? Should we say that or not? Well, it depends on what we mean, <laughs> like most things. If we are saying that the purpose the central purpose of the Bible is to describe who God is and how we have fallen from him and how we can rightly relate to him, then yes, in this sense, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. This is the first and foremost purpose of the Bible to share God's story of how he reaches out to broken and sinful individuals and brings them back to himself into relationship with himself through Jesus. That is the purpose of the Bible. So it is not, in that sense, a scientific textbook. But however, sometimes others, when they say that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, what they are saying is that when the Bible describes questions of cosmology, it is not history, but rather it is myth or parable or fable. Listen to the words of Francis Schaeffer, written 40 years ago, but still relevant. He said this, yes, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, in, is true in the sense that we have just spoken. Again, he was referring to the central purpose of the Bible being redemption. But many people today use the statement in a different way. That is to say, the Bible does not affirm anything about that which science has an interest Sorry, this is a little, it's, it's word for word, but it's a little unclear. When the statement is used to mean this, it must be totally rejected. The Bible does give affirmations about that which science has an interest. So, what we are saying is the purpose of the Bible does not innately run against the goals of science in its basic definition. Remember, 
The basic definition of science is organizing knowledge that we can infer from observation. The Bible innately is not running against that definition. The Bible invites it. The Bible encourages it. The Bible loves the inquiring mind. Romans 1 says that through creation, everyone has access to learn about God's eternal qualities and divine attributes. We have said many times here how it was a Christian view of the world that gave birth to science. The famous scientist James Clerk Maxwell, this is many years ago, responsible for the theory of electromagnetic radiation, I'm pretending to know what that means, but he had this verse engraved into the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England. Now again, this is a couple hundred years ago and he's using the King James Version, so it's a little clunky, but I think you'll get the point. He had this engraved, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all of them, <laughs> they have pleasures therein. The Bible invites us to learn and discover the world. So, the Bible and science can complement each other when they begin with the same starting point, a creator. They overlap, yes, but they also have their own function. Again, Francis Schaeffer said this, the Bible does not give us exhaustive truth about the things of the cosmos, and therefore science has a real function. Also, science as a study of general revelation has shown us things that cause us to understand the Bible better. Again, example of that is when Galileo helped us to interpret the Bible in a clearer way when we understood that the, what the Earth's rotation around the sun, not the other way around. Let's wrap up this first point. What we're saying is it is not as simple to say that because the Bible's main purpose, because its main purpose is not specifically scientific, or because it does not use, or it uses non-technical language to describe scientific phenomena, that just based on that does not make it anti-science. When we, what we assert is that when science and Bible have the same starting point, God is the creator, there is the real possibility of each complementing the other since all truth is God's truth with no final conflict. Okay? Let's go to the second point, and that is the cosmology, not the cosmetology, the cosmology of the Bible. Now, this is the reality, friends. We can't talk about the conflict between the science and the Bible without talking about the beginning of the universe and the creation of the first human beings. And of course, this is where it becomes not just a logical argument, but very emotional, right? Because there are a lot of things said maybe to you, or you've been accused of different things, or you've been put into a different box because of your beliefs. And maybe you have felt or been tempted to feel embarrassed or ashamed or even panicked with wondering, what does the Bible say on these things? And so it's not just obviously a logical argument, but it's very, it can be very emotional. What do we do? How do we respond when, when our cherished beliefs are challenged? This is the focus of so much sentiment feeding the notion that the Bible is anti-science. So what I want to do, as I said before, I want to look at our beliefs and then a 30,000 foot view. But, but here just quickly, 
just do a real quick survey on Genesis 1 and 2. This first verse, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. This is how the creation story begins. If you can't find it in your Bible, it's page 1. After these, this verse are the days of creation. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the waters. And then we see the creation of the planet earth. Look down next verse, Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 1 really focuses on the creation of the planet. Genesis 2 focuses on the creation of Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living being. And Genesis 2, 20 through 22. But for Adam, no suitable help, helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Wow, there is so much we could talk about here. This is the material of so much controversy, both inside and outside the church. For example, we could discuss the age of the earth. Is it young or is it young old? We could discuss the days of creation. Were they 24 hours or longer periods of time? We could discuss the creation of Adam and Eve. Were they the first human beings? Or were there existing Neolithic uh, hominoid farmers on the earth when they arrived? Were Adam and Eve latecomers to the party? Did they evolve from lower forms? Were they simply the first human-like beings that God gave a soul to? Again, let me share briefly here what our church believes. And I can't get into too much of the weeds here. There is a lot of weeds, and it doesn't, just, it doesn't serve us well on a Sunday morning. But let me share just a few things. We haven't done this in quite a long time. Okay, for example, the, on the question of the age of the earth. Indeed, some of our pastors... Uh, hold to a young earth. Others are not quite so sure. Again, look at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there is a reasonable linguistic case that this first points to the beginning of creation. In other words, that it stands alone and what follows, and, and, and not simply an overarching summary of what follows next. The Hebrew words there for formless and empty are used in other places in scripture and they point to a desolate place, a, a wasteland, uninhabitable. Isaiah 23, 1, or Isaiah 45, 18. Jeremiah 4.23. So what some have concluded is there was a period of time where the earth was uninhabitable and the following verses are about God making it habitable, the Garden of Eden, for the man and the woman and for human beings. And this could have been an indefinite length of time. Now, if this interpretation is correct, you can have an ancient earth, for example, and still have the days of creation occurring in 
hour, literal 24-hour periods. Now, just in case you're sort of following a score here, by the way, uh, if you're really wanting to reconcile science and the Bible, uh, that view solves some things and doesn't solve others. Secondly, how long were the days of creation? The most normal way, and this is, we didn't read these verses, verses 2 and so forth, the days, the seven days of creation. The most normal way of reading this, in my opinion, is that they are literal 24-hour days. The, if you look at the language in the verses, the rhythm of day and night, employing the language of morning and evening, uh, the use of the word day in that context, uh, the establishment of the con of the concept of a seven-day week culminating in the Sabbath that the Jews later practiced. All of this gives weight, shall we say, to a straightforward reading. And certainly, uh, people on all sides of this debate believe that we have a supernatural God who could do it in 24-hour period. That is not a logical impossibility. It is not unreasonable for an all-powerful God. Now, there are a few problems with the straightforward reading. One is the existence of light before the sun was created on day four. Where did that light come from if we read it as a straight sequence? Now, certainly there are some answers to that objection. There will be answers to the other objections that I raise. But again, we just can't get that deep into it this morning. What you will notice if you study this further is that whatever model you accept, guess what? There will be some challenges. There will be some problems. Now, others interpret the word day differently since the same word used in other places in Genesis refers to an age or an era of time. So they see these days as representing longer periods of time or they see the possibility of gaps in between the days. And again, as you might suspect, there are some theological challenges with that interpretation, such as when does death actually enter into God's creation? And the reason that's a challenge is because what does it say about God when he declares his creation good and there has been death happening in the world? Again, that's a, that's a, a, a challenge. Seeing the days of creation as literal 24-hour days was, an, was the historical view of our church. And most of our pastors uh, lean into this view, though not all. And again, we recognize that there are many sincere believers who love the Bible who have a different opinion regarding this. Okay, the third question that I raise, what about Adam and Eve? Are they the first human beings or the result of an evolutionary process? Now, this would be a great individual message and is actually quite an important one. This one has a bit more significance, friends, because unlike the literalness of the 24 hours days, the idea of God creating ex nihilo from nothing to something is repeated again and again in scripture. And up until recent history, it was held almost universally by the church that God created this way. For example, Psalm 33 verse 6, 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Our Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Again, theologians call this creation by fiat, creation by the spoken word. Greg Allison said about these verses, for example, God did not take two pre-existing hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom and one oxygen atom, and fuse them into water to make H2O. Rather, he created both hydrogen and oxygen atoms, as well as the water. Divine creation was out of nothing. This divine creation, again, just stay with me here. We've got to think about this a little deeper. Stay with me. This divine creation by fiat appears to rule out attributing creative powers to matter. Okay, let me say it again. Divine creation by fiat appears to rule out attributing creative powers to matter. That, by the way, is a quote from Thomas Aquinas a 15th century Catholic theologian, not really debating the, the, the issues of the day. What that means is that divine creation by fiat rules out macroevolution. It runs headlong into natural selection. And then what is a more recent phenomena, something called theistic evolution. And theistic evolution, what that means, as you can tell by the words, it suggests that God still created, but he used evolutionary process. And again, creation ex nihilo, where God creates, and then even as we see in the creation story, God continues to intervene and to create. Again, it seems to rule out an evolutionary process. So it is our view here at Linworth that these two views without more information cannot be squared. And now we say this with all respect for others who think differently. For example, there are eminent scientists such as Francis Collins, the leader, uh, the visionary of the Human Genome Project, a believer in Jesus. He adopted, uh, in his attempt to reconcile science and the Bible, he adopted a theistic evolutionary view. And while at least here at Linworth, we cannot agree with him because of our conviction of creation ex nihilo. It is worth pointing out that this is not an issue, unlike what some folks say, this is not an issue where a person's salvation is at stake. We respect the views of others, and yet at the same time, we must have our own convictions here. Why am I kind of going on and on with this? Why is this so important? Well, one reason, for example, is that we affirm, we believe that Adam and Eve were the first real human beings. And they were the result of a special divine creation, not a long evolutionary process. You know, so much of what we believe hinges on this. If Adam was not a real human being, it calls into question the teaching of the New Testament about our redemption and forgiveness. Adam's historicity is set alongside of and equated to Jesus's. 
Jesus spoke of Adam's special creation with the implication that he was a real historical figure. And if Adam was the result of a long evolutionary process or was not a true figure, then there are strings pulled out of the theological tapestry that make up the thrust of the teaching of the New Testament, our redemption. Okay, how are we doing? How are we doing so far? This is what Lynn Worth believes, okay? Now let me shift, let me shift, and now let's just take, moving from what this one church believes, let's take a 30,000 foot view of creation. Let's get above the details. Let's get to the place where what every Christian ought to be able to affirm about creation's meaning. meaning. To illustrate this by way of a picture, imagine we're all sitting in a room together and we have just described the furniture that we're sitting in. Now the furniture is not unimportant. The furniture uh, adds to the color and the texture and the meaning of the room. But for the furniture to be, uh, to be organized in any kind of a coordinated way, right? You have to have what? A, a floor for the furniture to, to, to sit on. This is the floor. I'm just going to give seven things. And again, this is from John Lennox uh, in his book, seven, seven Days That Divide the World. Number one, God exists. Creation teaches God exists. In the beginning, first verse, God. He is the source of ultimate reality. He offers no evidence at this point, just asserts that he is. Every worldview must begin somewhere. Number two, God is the eternal creator. This is affirmed from beginning to end. I won't read it here, but uh, you can jot down Revelation 4.11, the last book of the Bible. Number three, God is distinct from his creation. God is not identical with his creation. God does not confer divine status on the sun, moon, or stars. God is not simply an emanation like the rays from sun. He is separate from his creation. So the Bible, it does not affirm, for example, polytheism. God is in everything or, or monism the favorite religion of the, of, the star, of the Star Wars world. God is not identical to his creation. Fourthly, God is personal. He's not an impersonal force to be used or harnessed. Uh, words, like, words like he created them in his image. He blessed them. He saw that it was good. Convey God's personalness. Fifthly, fourthly or fifthly, whatever number, God is a fellowship. We see here right in the very beginning of the Bible, while not a full-blown teaching on the Trinity, in the very beginning we get a hint that God is plural. He created through his word, which is later identified as Jesus in the prologue to John's gospel. There is a very evident corollary between Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. And again, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, hovers over the water. He said in the making of man and the woman, let us make man in our image. This is vital because it shows God in his external being. His, I'm sorry, his eternal being. That he existed 
in community and in loving relationship. For love to exist, there must be another. God existed in Trinity before creation began. Love did not just show up when we showed up. Love existed and has existed for eternity. Next, God has a goal in his creation. The unfolding of creation showed not only how God created, but why he created. And that is for human beings to flourish. And again, much of our recent science, speaking of the fine-tuning of the universe, complements that beautifully. Next, God, cre God creates by his word. And again, here I'm going to draw on the research of John Lennox, or the words of John Lennox. Lennox says that recent scientific discovery has shown that the universe did not come to be without the input and energy from an intelligent source. The greater word Jesus, according to Colossians 1, is responsible for all that we are, physical and spiritual. And part of that makeup includes information in each of the 10 trillion cells in your body. 10 trillion in your body, we each possess a word, a word, a word of mind-boggling length, the human genome. This word is 3.5 billion letters long. This is the DNA carrying your genetic information of who you are. It is your word, so to speak, created by the word. And created in his image, we have the capacity to learn and talk about our beautiful, wonderful universe and world. Okay, so that's the 30,000 foot view of what every Christian ought to be able to affirm about the creation story. So what have I said this morning about the, or what have I said about the cosmology of the Bible? Again, I shared what we specifically believe at Linworth and then this 30,000 foot high big picture view. We also talked about the purpose of the Bible. Though it's not a scientific textbook, it touches on similar concerns and asserts objective truth and knowledge. And so I come back to our initial question then, as we give my, my last comments here, we come back to our initial question, is the Bible anti-science? We've already tried to answer that. But let me give six things that I think bring this into focus with how do we live in this world where often the prevailing scientific view runs counter to what the Bible teaches? How do we deal with this tension? And I think it's helpful just to acknowledge, yeah, there is a tension. There really is a tension that we're trying to resolve. These are some things that I want to encourage you to remember as we are students of both the Bible and science, right? We ought to be, as Christians, students of both the Bible and of science, right? Because we are after truth. And science, in its purest form, is after truth. And we as believers also ought to be after truth. So we are students, we ought to be students of the Bible as well as students of science. Now, I don't know, I, I, poor Andrea back there, I gave her these things at the last moment. You got them, oh, 
Thank you so much. All right, so, but I have to run through these fairly quickly so we can, we can finish here with worship. All right, six things to, to as, as ways of thinking about how to move forward in our world with, uh, again, where we as believers are often have this, this component where, again, we're not sure how to respond and we feel like we're, we, we don't have the information to articulate what we believe or, or we feel panicked that um, the Bibles or that science seems to disprove things that we cherish. Let me give you six things here to help with that. One, our first responsibility is to be faithful to Scripture as we best understand it. That is our anchor, to be faithful to Scripture as we best understand it. Number two, we must recognize that while our Bible is trustworthy as God's Word, our interpretation of it must be open to correction, right? We have to keep that in mind. Indeed, the Bible is infallible, but guess what people are? <laughs> people are fallible, and we must stay open, especially in an area like this. We must remain open to correction, and indeed, we ask our fellow scientists, right? We ask our fellow scientists to do the same, to be open to correction. Thirdly, if there are tensions between the Bible and science that we cannot solve with integrity, we should simply say so, okay? We should not be afraid to live in that tension or that uncertainty. This can be uncomfortable, friends. I recognize this can feel uncomfortable, but integrity requires us to not make things up. And if there are tensions that in our own conscience, we can't solve with integrity, we should say such. Number four, we must seek balance. Neither ignoring science on the one hand, again, that got the church into a lot of trouble during the days of Galileo and Copernicus. And actually, by the way, it wasn't just the church. The entire world, I mean, the, the prevailing science in the church and outside the church during that era was that, again, that the, the, the earth rotated around the sun. Okay, it wasn't just the church. But so we must neither ignore the science on one hand, but also not allow science disproportionate weight in how we understand the scripture on the other. Okay? So on one hand, we must not ignore science. On the other hand, we cannot give it disproportionate weight in how we interpret scripture. Number five, science. And again, here I'm speaking of not the pure science. I'm speaking of materialism. Remember, science or materialism and the church have different starting points. Therefore, we should not panic or be surprised when our conclusions are different, okay? So we shouldn't panic. We shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed when our conclusions are different. We should expect it. We have different, again, with materialism, we have different starting points. And then finally, number six, remember, and I can't, I can't give much detail on this. I have in previous messages. Remember, both the church and science begin their search for truth with unproven assumptions. So do not believe, do not believe the mistruth that science has some leg up with respect to being objective. Science is based on unprovable assumptions. Now, I'm not going to go down. I can't, I can, if you're, 
I can talk to you later about what they are. It's kind of getting deep into the weeds. But science is based on assumptions. So don't let the argument shift that the burden of proof is on you. Yeah, we both have unproven assumptions. We assert there's a God. We have no direct evidence for that, at least direct evidence. But science asserts that the world is rational, that the world has order, and that the human mind can make sense of that. That, friends, is an unproven assumption. You can't prove that. You can't prove it. You can't prove if your logic is good or if your logic is bad. We both have unproven assumptions, and so neither side, if I could say it that way in a sense, um, should be, should be uh, uh, saying that we have objective truth and everything you believe is opinion. That just is not the case. Let me close with this, and, and um, you can come on up, uh, uh, Kim and Caleb. Let me just close with a quote by Francis Schaeffer. And then I think at the end I want to share just one scripture that will bring this back home to us. But, but some advice and counsel and guidance for you when you face these issues. This is what Francis, again, writing 40 years ago, but still relevant. When we face apparent problems between scientific theories and the teaching of the Bible, the first rule is not to panic. As though the scientific theory is always right. The history of science, including the science in our own day, has often seen great dogmatism about theories which later have been discarded. Thus, there is no inherent reason why a current scientific theory should immediately be accepted. And there is no inherent reason, reason why a Christian should panic because the current scientific theory is opposite to what is taught in the Bible. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we love you, and we love your word, and as we try to interface with our world in a loving and meaningful way, we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to walk through these tensions, these cross currents in ways that are loving and kind, but also full of truth. And Lord, may we as a people, uh, may we as a people know our creator. May we as the church, the people of God, know we've been created by you. You've given us a soul. And we have meaning in this world. And you've given us a heart, Father. A heart to know you. A heart to love you. Indeed, a heart to worship you. Like that scripture says, worthy art thou, O God. Worthy art thou, O God. You who have created all things that exist, all things that have been, all things that will ever be, you created them by yourself, through yourself, for yourself. Therefore, you are worthy of all glory. You are worthy of all praise and honor. And may we give you that, Father, as the creator of all that we see, all reality, Father, the phenomena that we see in this world, the created world, it does cry out to us that you are alive, that you are real. It depicts your beauty and significance and creativity. And so now let us, God, let us worship you for the glory that you've revealed and made accessible to every human being. In Jesus' name we pray.
guys want to stand up and we're going to join in worship. With this song, I just I love picturing God's creation, singing how his glory is displayed through it. So if you'll join me.
second corinthians 4 6 says for god who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of god's glory displayed in the face of christ the same power by which god said let light shine out of darkness is the same power that he expresses in your life when you say, I am a believer in Jesus, you become a new creation. And in the same way that what God created, he hovered over the chaos and he brought life, he made it habitable, he brought energy, he brought joy to the chaos by his spoken voice in the same way, in the same way, God says to us, let the light shine out of darkness. He brings order. He brings energy. He brings joy. He brings healing to our lives. This morning, you might have come without any attempt or concern or worry about the Bible and science. But you may have come with a broken heart. You may have come with a heart that needs healed. You may have come with needing a lot of light in your chaos. You may have come needing to hear the voice of God speak over you. You are a new creation. You are united with Jesus, not only in his death, but you can be united with Jesus in his resurrection and have a new life that he speaks over to you with his power to recreate. And so whatever you brought with you this morning that needs heal, that needs touch, that needs the love of God to pour into that crevice, we want to invite you to come forward and to receive prayer from our ministry team. Our ministry here continues. You might turn to a friend or a life group leader or a pastor out amongst you. But this is about meeting our creator who has the power to heal for our final blessing. Now may, now may the God who creates with the power of his voice bring healing and order and joy into your chaos through the power of the Holy Spirit with Christ leading us and Christ behind us.